Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. That is, uh, those are some of my favorite songs. I love seeing the team have fun. You guys were killing it. I love that. Uh, that was so much fun. And what a great reminder of God's redeeming plan in history. From the prophets to all the way into Jesus' death, the resurrection, the birth of the church, that's us. We get to participate in what God is doing in redeeming and restoring the entire world. And that's a pretty cool Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 28. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And we want to participate in that disciple-making mission that Jesus gave us that still continues now 2,000 years later. It just so happens that coming out of Christmas Eve, we started hearing from a lot of people that were going, man, God is doing something in my life. Actually, it started with children as often happens, that children were saying, I want to give my life to Jesus, I want to be baptized. And there has been just a consistent stream of that over these last several months, even into Easter, where we were able to baptize eight individuals on Easter Sunday morning, and coming out of that, more that said, hey, I saw these people being baptized, tell me about baptism. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of do a a one-day, one-week teaching on baptism. You're going to see the trough next to me. The water should be, oh yeah, that's really nice. So I can just kind of step. I got you. It's not full. Um, I am not getting wet this morning. Uh, I asked the guys, I said, I need a prop. I need an illustration for this morning. So I'm going to refer to that some uh, today. But basically, if we could think about it this way, last week's message and this week's message are kind of a two-part. One is on teaching us to obey all that Jesus has commanded. That's part of that great commission in Matthew 28. And then today is going to be on baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because the reality is, some of you have not been around church a lot. And you may have heard of this thing, baptism, but you really don't know a lot about it. Others of you maybe learned some things that you could relearn or have corrected in a teaching on baptism. So our desire today is simply to do that. And we're going to do this in kind of three parts. Uh, Number one, uh, I want to give you a historical kind of catch up on what baptism is all about. From the Old Testament into the New Testament, what is this thing about baptism? And then we're going to look at four ways that baptism becomes a picture of our salvation experience. It is a visual representation of what it means to be a saved person. And then we're going to end with just a simple opportunity for those who feel God's nudging in your heart that it's the right time for you to take that step of baptism. Now, some of you, the reality is you've been baptized, you're following Jesus. I would love for you to pick up some tools this morning that could help you have the conversation with others about what it means to follow Jesus and to be baptized. So that's kind of the game plan this morning. And before we dive into all of that, I want to take a deep breath and say a word of prayer. Would you join with me in that? Father, we thank you for your redeeming mission that began in Jesus and 
God, that you've now entrusted to us. Your word says that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation. As if God was making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. Lord, we thank you for the way that baptism becomes a picture, an illustration of of what is going on in a person's life when they're coming to faith in Jesus. Um, God, I pray that today would create higher levels of understanding and clarity. God, for some that it would be the, the catalyst or the impetus that they need to take that important step of baptism. God, where there's things that are foggy or cloudy, would, cloudy, would you let your word clear up those things in our mind? And ultimately, God, we just want to be um, obedient to what you've asked us to do, to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So some parts of today will feel a little more academic. I hope it doesn't fully feel that, but it's important that this is a uh, uh, understanding or a teaching that we walk through together. Okay, we're going to hang it on these, on these four pictures of baptism. But first, let me take you through a brief history of baptism because baptism did not first show up in the New Testament. So years and years earlier, centuries earlier, among the Hebrew people of the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Old Covenant, there was this thing of baptism. And the Hebrews of old had two parts to baptism. One was washing of hands. That was a considered a baptism ritual, if you can believe it. And the other was full body immersion. Generally speaking, without getting too in the weeds of it, uh, for a person to uh, become clean in the eyes of the priests, they had to be ritually cleansed through the washing of hands. That would permit them to go and make their prayers, to offer sacrifices, to enter the temple. But in some cases where a person had really messed up, uh, something more than ritual hand cleansing was needed. And in those cases, the person would be subjected to full body immersion, head to toe immersion in the waters of cleansing. Some of you would remember a time where Jesus was teaching and the religious people came to him and said, hey, Jesus, time out. Your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat, which first of all is just kind of gross. But it is a reminder that Jesus did not choose the elite cream of the crop to be his followers. He chose guys that were used to having their hands smell like fish and didn't think it was that important to wash their hands before they ate. But what really triggered the Pharisees was not the fact that they were simply hygienically unclean, they were ritually unclean, meaning that they hadn't followed the procedures of ritual cleansing in the washing of their hands. Well, this second thing of full body immersion was a little bit more than that because full body immersion always represented to the Jewish people a change in status, a change in status. This is going to get into more what we understand baptism to be. So for a uh, person who was in need of full body immersion, this was somebody who had become ceremonially unclean, and when they went through the waters of baptism, their status changed from unclean to clean. Even more to the point, when a non-believer, somebody that the, the Jewish people referred to as a Gentile, someone outside of the family of God, when they wanted to be included in, they had to go through full body immersion, and that baptism would change their status from Gentile to part of the Jewish family, part of the Jewish community. So in Hebrew tradition and practice, this was the reason for baptism. This, I believe, is why John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, came preaching a simple message. He said, repent and be baptized. 
To repent is simply to be going in one direction and to turn and go the other direction. It is a change of status. And so John says, let your heart condition change, repent, and be baptized as a representation of that changed status from one who does not follow after God to one who does. Now, one important distinction in the message that both Jesus and John the Baptist preached, they did not say, be baptized so that you can become a Jew. What they said is, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And why this is so important to understand is that to both Jesus and John the Baptist and every New Testament writer and preacher following, baptism no longer symbolized entrance into the Hebrew community, but entrance into the community of all redeemed people of all nations who belong to God. This, of course, was somewhat problematic in the first century, which most of the first followers of Jesus were Jewish people, and they were left scratching their heads going, what do you mean a person can simply be baptized for salvation? Like, what what do you mean? They don't have to be circumcised? New Testament's like, nope. They don't have to observe all the commandments of the law? Nope. They don't have to go through ritual cleansing? Nope. By grace, through faith, salvation is the gift of God. And so this repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a change from adoption into a physical community to adoption into a spiritual community of new life. This is what Paul was trying to articulate to the Galatians in chapter 3 verses 27 and 29. He said, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek. There is not slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Paul is making a point here that it is the common faith and baptism alone that brings unity within the church. No longer distinctions about Jew or Greek or or socioeconomic status. The baptism of our bodies into the water is a unifying factor for the church. Nothing else besides faith is needed. Now let me uh, encourage us to avoid two pitfalls. And one, you may already be wondering if I'm going that direction. I want to make sure you know I'm not. On one side, it's important that we establish that baptism is not a means of salvation. Baptism is not a means of salvation. There are a lot of people who have been baptized as babies, children, or maybe even adults who have never truly put their confidence in Jesus and given him their life. For them, it was a a ritual. For them, it was a ceremony. For them, it was maybe something a parent wanted them to do or culturally expected of them. It's important that we know that baptism symbolizes our salvation. It does not secure it. Now, one of the reasons I know this, and this is something that, that often gets pointed to to answer this question about the necessity of baptism for salvation, is that you may remember when Jesus was dying on the cross, a man next to him, also being crucified, said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus' answer was not, just as soon as you get off that cross, we'll go baptize you so you can be saved. Jesus said instead, this very day you'll be with me in paradise. So the thief on the cross had no opportunity to be baptized, but it wasn't necessary for salvation. The blood of Jesus and his confidence in Jesus as Savior is what saved him, and it is what saves us. On the other hand, 
Someone's going to say, yeah, I didn't think baptism was all that important. It's not necessary. Well, it may not be necessary or essential for salvation, but I would argue that it is still necessary. In fact, everywhere that the good news of Jesus went throughout the story of Acts, the, the, uh, a baptism accompanied that gospel. First at Pentecost, when 3,000 people turned to Peter and said, brother, what should we do to be saved? He said, repent and be baptized. A little bit later in Acts chapter 8, when the gospel finally got to a place called Samaria, it was accompanied with baptism. When the apostle Paul converted in Acts chapter 9, he was immediately baptized. When the gospel came first to the Gentiles, so not even Jews or Samaritans, in Acts chapter 10, they were immediately baptized at Philippi and Corinth in Acts 16, 18, and 19. When the gospel shows up, immediately people respond and they are baptized. So if we ask the question, is baptism necessary for salvation? The answer is no, but it's also, I would argue, the wrong question. A better question is, what has God asked of his people? See, even Jesus one time shows up at the Jordan River with his cousin John, who's baptizing all these people. Remember, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the people coming really needed to repent because they were tax collectors and prostitutes and and Roman soldiers who enjoyed wreaking violence on the earth. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And John's like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) What are you doing here? He says, Jesus, you have this reverse. You don't need to be baptized by me. John rightly understood that Jesus was without sin and therefore without the need to change his status, which baptism symbolizes. He says, you don't need to be baptized by me. And Jesus says, right, but John, it's important that I do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is saying, it's not just that whether or not it's essential for salvation, it is a fulfillment of the righteous way of living that God has called his people to. So Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to submit our lives to God in the act of baptism. All right, so with that kind of preamble, let me get into these four ways that baptism becomes a picture of our salvation experience. Number one, the waters of baptism are a picture of cleansing. This is probably the most universally understood way that baptism is a symbol of salvation. We go, oh, water means cleansing. We all understand that. Um, If you have children, you really understand how essential water is for cleansing. My family started with two girls, and they were fantastic and kept themselves very clean from morning through the evening. And then we had a son. And I convinced that my son could take three showers a day and still not get the dirt off of his body. I don't know what it is, but, but we get that. Throughout all of history, one of the benefits of water is that we use it to bathe. We use it to cleanse ourselves. That when we immerse ourselves in water, what's happening especially where soap and shampoo are involved, is that dirt and grime and germs are being washed away from us. And so, of course, baptism as a picture represents the cleansing of our sins. Here's how one of Jesus' disciples said it in 1 Peter chapter 3. Referring to the ark of Noah, he said, In the ark, a few people, only eight, were brought safely through water. And baptism, which corresponds or connects to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ so so 
Peter looks like he's saying that baptism saves us. He goes, but wait, time out. Not the removal of dirt. In other words, not the external act. What saves you is the appeal of a good conscience. One translation says the pledge of a good conscience. What it literally means in the language is the the intense desire or craving for something better. And so Peter's going to make the point that water is symbolic of this. But what actually saves us is not the external act. It's the internal heart that says, God, I want all of you. I put my trust and confidence in Jesus for my salvation. And that act is what saves us. Let me say this a little even more clearly. The basis of our salvation is purely the cleansing of our sin by the blood of Jesus. There is no other element, there is no other person, there is no other ideology that is able to save you. Jesus' blood on the cross of Calvary is enough to wash away your sins by grace through faith. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. In the old covenant among the Hebrew people, the way they understood this was that if they wanted their sins to be forgiven, they had to shed the blood of an animal. And so ritual animal sacrifices were a constant reality in the temple of God's people. But long before Jesus came up, a man named David, who was the king of Israel and understood that culture well, said in one point in Psalm chapter 51, he said, with animal sacrifices, Lord, you are not pleased. Renew in me a clean heart and a right spirit within me. David was foreshadowing, David was understanding that these animal sacrifices were only meant to foreshadow something greater that was coming. And that greater sacrifice was Jesus on the cross. The one who's sometimes referred to as the Lamb of God slain for the entire world. So when we baptize, the water of baptism represents the cleansing of the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins once and for all. And this is why we practice what we call believer's baptism. Believer's baptism. In other words, we will not baptize somebody unless they have made a personal decision to entrust their life to Jesus. Now, there are a lot of reasons, again, that a person might want to be baptized, but the only reason a person was ever baptized in the New Testament was at the moment they pledged their life, their devotion, their surrendered heart to the person of Jesus. So this never happens before, and in the case of the New Testament, it almost never happens much after. So number one, the waters of baptism represent the cleansing of our salvation. The second way it is a picture of our salvation is that the movements of baptism are a picture of new life. Now, any of us who have had children, or we've had nieces or nephews or wherever it might be, we understand the celebration that accompanies new life. The the, the announcement that used to go out in printed form now goes out on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok, I'm sure, but there's this big announcement, right? Hey, we're having a baby. And maybe before that, there's the disclosure to the parents, you're going to be grandparents, and you printed that cute little shirt or whatever it was, right? Or you did a gender reveal. Are people still doing gender reveals? Still doing them? Okay, it's been a little while for us. But, but we celebrate it, rightly so. And when that baby is finally born, man, the joy, the, the excitement that emanates from that. And the Bible teaches that when a person comes to faith in Jesus, what's happening is new life is being created. But here's where it gets tough. 
It's one thing for new life to be created where life did not exist. It's something quite different when new life is being created from a life that currently exists. And in order for that to happen, there has to be a spiritual death of the previous life. In other words, when we come to faith in Jesus, we're not coming as a blank slate saying, hey, Jesus, like, just take this nothing and turn it into something. What I did when I came to Jesus was said, Jesus, take this mess and do something new with it. Take my anger, my greed, my lust, my laziness, my selfishness. And so there can't be new life in Christ unless there's at the same time the death of an existing life that I have. Jesus illustrates this in John chapter 3. He was talking with a religious leader named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, among the other religious people, thought that their current life was pretty well and good. Didn't need a whole lot. Now maybe those pagans, those Gentiles, those tax collectors, they need to be baptized. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, let me tell you something. Unless one is born again, that person cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, of course, Nicodemus is thinking in physical terms and says, how can I go back into my mother's womb, which is a bizarre picture to even entertain. And Jesus helps him to understand. And what Jesus is saying is that new life can't begin until the old life is put to death. This always involves two things. It involves a choice and a change. The onset of new life always begins a choice and a change. We summarize this idea in the word repentance. I'm going this way. I stop. I choose a new direction and I change so that my life, my habits, my desires and thoughts now reflect not the old life before Jesus, but are marked by the new life in him. And so the person marked by greed begins to commit to a new life of generous living. The person marked by anger commits to a life of peace. The person marked by lust commits to a life of purity. And on and on and on it goes. Paul illustrated this for the Colossians in chapter 3, verses 5-11, and he leans into this idea that the old life needs to die so the new life can come. And he says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. It's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. And in these things you once walked while you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to each other, since you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, For here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now it's really interesting that Paul tells the Colossians, you put to death these things. Because we're going, wait a second. Isn't everything we have the gift of God at work in us? And the answer is where Paul says in Ephesians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. In other words, when I'm baptized, when I come to faith in Jesus, I'm signing up not only to just passively kind of let God do a work in me, but to cooperate with God in the changing from an old life to a new one. And Paul says over all of this, these simple words, he says, Christ is all. Christ is all. 
None of the old Jewish practices, none of the the new religious rituals, none of this uh, spiritualism of the modern day. Christ is all, and he is in all. What this room is filled with is men and women who have tried desperately to fix ourselves and found ourselves unable to do so. And so by faith, we said, Jesus, would you put to death my old life, and we'll partner with you in that. When I have that conviction, when I go, this isn't a thought that honors God, I I choose to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And when I'm tempted to to lie or maybe to cheat on my taxes or to do something to to get myself ahead and and make a power play, I go, no, Jesus is all and is in all. The one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, who did not open his mouth to defend himself. God, I will sign up for this. Putting to death the old and bringing to life the new. So how do the movements of baptism symbolize this transition from old life to new? Well, simply this way. As we baptize somebody, we do it like this. We baptize them by laying them back one time under the water and then relatively quickly bringing them up out of the water, symbolizing death and resurrection. Now, when I was young, I was growing up in a different church and we did baptism a little bit differently. It was still underwater, uh, but we did it three times. Because we emphasize the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So it went like this. You're baptized in the name of the Father. Dunk. Come up. Baptized in the name of the Son. Dunk. Come up. And in the name of the Holy Spirit. Dunk. Come up. And by the time they finished waterboarding you, (laughs) you had been baptized. Now, there were reasons for the church to do it in that way. They, They understood rightly that in the first century, it was important, especially for Jewish believers coming to faith, that the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was emphasized. The triune nature of God, still important, and still why we say every time we baptize someone, we're doing this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what I love about the picture of baptism as going down under the water and coming up is exactly what we're talking about here. Baptism, more than anything else we experience in life, pictures our death to the old life and the rising up of a new life in Christ. And it's even bigger than that. Because it's not only picturing what's going on internally in our own heart, it's also a visual representation of the good news itself. That Jesus was crucified, was buried, and was raised to life. When I step into the waters of baptism, and my body goes back under the water and up out of it, I'm saying I identify my life in Christ, the one who was crucified, buried, and was raised to new life. Let's keep moving. Number three, the third way that baptism pictures our salvation is that our profession at baptism, our verbal profession, is a picture of submission. If you've not seen a baptism at Horizon West Church or one of the first Orlando campuses, we pretty much do them all the same way. The person being baptized will simply say, my name is, in my case, my name is Chris and Jesus is Lord. Or Jesus is my Lord, or some people say Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But the Lordship of Jesus is the primary emphasis of our profession at the point of baptism. If that terminology is kind of new or strange to you, in ancient times, a Lord was simply the person who was the master or the owner. In modern vernacular, although it somewhat falls short, we might refer to this as our leader or our authority. 
So when I say Jesus is Lord, I'm saying I'm submitting my life under the leadership or the authority of Jesus. Now we've all been exposed to this axiom that mostly proves entirely true, which says power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, and the, the challenge is that most of us don't have a lot of images in our modern lives of good leadership and good authority. We see people in positions of leadership and authority who, who lord it over others, who abuse their power, who grasp for more and more, who sacrifice perhaps the good of their constituents for their own pleasures. But Jesus' leadership is something very different than that. In fact, I want to encourage you to think for a moment about the best person that you know. Maybe that's your grandmother or grandfather, a mom or dad, a sibling, a child, a former pastor, whatever it might be. Think about that person who is the most compassionate, the most justice-oriented, the most available to, be, uh, to, to listen to you, the most kind and forgiving and gracious. And then imagine that that person is in charge of everything. Like they're running the government. I know this is really hard to understand or picture because it just doesn't happen. But, but if it were to happen and that person's will was just completely followed, what would that look like for our economy? What would that mean for our environment? What would that do for education, for the way people interact with each other, the laws that govern our land? And we know from Scripture, we know in the New Testament that Jesus is that good leader and that good authority. That when his will is done, it is for human flourishing and for human benefit. It's why we pray, and we went over this a few weeks ago in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's another way of saying, Jesus be the Lord of my life, and Jesus exercise your authority over this broken world that I live in. Jesus is Lord. This refrain has roots both historically and in Scripture because the first century, this is the pro proclamation that they would make at baptism. They would simply go into the water and as they were about to be baptized, they would declare Jesus is Lord. Also, biblically, Romans 10, 9, and 10 say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you, are, that you confess and are saved. And then again in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now Paul is not saying there that you cannot verbalize the words Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit in you. This, this has been a misunderstanding that has caused some people who think they might be working with somebody who's demonized. They say, just say Jesus is Lord. And if you can say it, you pass the test. The demons can't stay. I don't believe that. What Paul's saying is, no one can say and mean Jesus is the authority over my life unless the Holy Spirit of God lives in them by faith. So that profession, Jesus is Lord, is a statement of submission. But I want to take it one further. It's not only a statement of submission to Jesus as Lord, that's primary, but I believe the public nature of baptism and the public nature of that profession is also, in a way, submission to the local church. In other words, when I say Jesus is Lord, I'm saying to all of my brothers and sisters, that my, my new family of God, I'm letting Jesus be in control. And I'm letting you hold me accountable to make sure that that's happening. Now, we're not micromanaging people's lives and we're not going on a witch hunt to try to find sin in your life and root it out. 
But I will tell you, if there are people that love you, that are in your life with you, they're gonna point out the places where you may be falling short, the places where you may be egregiously walking outside of the will of God, because outside of the will of God is death. And we are for life. And it's one of the reasons I'm really reluctant to baptize somebody that I don't really know or have no connection with or is not part of our church. It's like a drive-by baptism. Like, you're a pastor, baptize me. I'm like, no, <laughs> no. If I'm baptizing you, I'm committing to myself or a group leader or a person in our church or, or your family that you're in. I'm committing to walking with you, to helping you live out what you professed at baptism when you said Jesus is your Lord. Finally, the way that, final way that uh, baptism is a picture of our salvation is in this way, that in immersion we see a picture of the totality of our surrender to God. Modifying an old story that I heard when I was younger, let me tell you that there was once a pastor and uh, in his church was a wealthy man who was known for being extremely stingy. Despite all of his wealth, he never gave anything to the church. And lo and behold, this wealthy, stingy man one time had a, a divine encounter with God and gave his life to Jesus and said, Pastor, I'm ready to be baptized. And as that man came up to be baptized, the pastor stopped him and he said, where is your wallet? And he said, well, I took it out so it wouldn't get wet. He said, no, the wallet goes in with you because everything that gets baptized belongs to the Lord. M meaning that when we're immersed in the waters of baptism, we don't leave any part out from head to toe, the full immersion represents that every part of our new life now belongs to Jesus. The reality that's pretty plain and simple is that every sin and every act that honors God at some level comes back to our body, right? We like to chop our lives up into like spiritual life, and my work life, and my family, but everything we do, we do in a body. We sin with our body, with our eyes and our mouth or our mind. We also honor God with our body, with our hands, our feet, our going, our, our doing. And so when our body, our physical self, is fully immersed in the waters of baptism, we're saying, God, from head to toe, everything I have control of, my human operating system is now in your care and under your control. So that's the primary reason that we choose in this family of God to baptize by immersion. Let me also take the chance to say, we're not here to throw stones at people that baptize other than, than that. And if you were baptized in another way, it's not like that baptism didn't count. God does not look at the outward appearances, he looks at the heart. We're, we're looking for what is the best picture of baptism. You actually may remember if you were here Easter Sunday that we baptized a couple with a water bottle because there were some logistical challenges. You know what I think God was doing? Giving them a standing ovation going, praise God, my children are home. Right? Like, God's not caught up in the logistics. And we say in my family, hey, we don't throw stones at neighbors for the way they do life, but there's some ways we do life, and these are the reasons. And so in this church, we baptize by immersion primarily for that picture of full surrender to Jesus. And then secondly, and very practically, the word baptism means immersion. Baptisma. We didn't even create a new English word for it. We just borrowed from the Greek and call it baptizing. It means to immerse. And so wherever possible, given that there's not water shortages or physical challenges, we choose to baptize by immersion as a picture of total surrender. Again, this in no way means that those who do otherwise are in error. God is never stuck on ritual methods. He's concerned about the surrender of our hearts. And that is the reason 
that we, we remind ourselves of that. Let me close with some thoughts that kind of tie all of this in together because as I was preparing for this Sunday, it occurred to me that these four pictures also can be categorized in two ways. Baptism can be seen as a picture of Jesus' work as our Savior and then also as our Lord. So in pictures one and two, the waters of cleansing and the movements of death and resurrection, those are pictures of Jesus as our Savior. Those are pictures of what I might call the completed work of God on our behalf. The cleansing, the death and the resurrection, that's a work that Jesus has done in us and for us and it is finished. But these other two pictures, the profession and the immersion into water, those are more the picture of Jesus' lordship over our lives, or I might say, the ongoing work of God in and through us. Baptism is not the end of something. I came to faith and then I was baptized. Baptism's the beginning of something. Faith and baptism are, are new life and new birth, and God has so much more for you in the days ahead as you learn to walk with Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. So let me close in this way. I know that there may be some in the room or some watching on video that God's been stirring in your heart that it's time for you to be baptized. And hopefully I've answered some questions that you have about that, but we'd also love to talk to you. I'm spending more and more of my time, and I love doing it, clarifying for people what it means to be baptized and why that's such a beautiful and a right thing to do. So if that's you, we just want to give you some practical steps that you can take to be baptized or to begin that conversation. It may be that others of you are in relationship with people that are outside of the reach of myself or even our church, and they're having questions to you about salvation, questions to you about baptism. I hope in some ways this has better equipped you to have a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus and why baptism is an important part of that initial journey. Beach baptisms are coming on May 7th. I'm not going to get into all the logistics on this, but that would be a great way. It's two weeks out. If you're going, man, that's, you know, that, I'm in that place. I think I might be ready. We'd love to invite you to beach baptisms at Cocoa Beach on May 7th. Matt's going to share a little more about that. I would also encourage you, even if you're not going to be baptized, if you want a beautiful visual picture of dozens and dozens of people across all of our campuses going into the waters of baptism, symbolizing that new life in Christ, we'd love to invite you to come there as well. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you again for your goodness to us and your mercy. God, we thank you that we didn't have to fight our way or find our way to you. God, you did the work for us. For God, you so loved the world that you gave your one and only son that whoever believes in you would not perish but have eternal life. And God, as we reflect on baptism, we're just reminded that God, it's simply a picture. It's simply a picture of what it means to let our old life be washed away in the water and let a new life emerge, a life that is for your glory, your honor, and for the good of the world. God, would you convict where conviction is needed? God, would you meet every person at the point of their need when they walked in this morning? And we'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.